Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you now, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us. We thank you, Lord, that you illuminate the hearts of sinful human beings, giving their souls eyes that can see and ears that can hear what the Spirit is declaring to us. Lord, we thank you that it's through the power of the gospel that we are transformed and brought out of darkness into your marvelous light. And Lord, we ask right now that you would illumine this text by your Spirit so that we might see and hear and understand what God is saying to us in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you'd open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. I want us to think about something as we begin to look at this passage and look at what Jesus is saying. I've told you all along that Mark in the prologue, and whether you think verses 14 and 15, as some scholars do, is the end of the prologue, or whether you think it's the beginning, that the prologue ended at verse 13, it's quite frankly, I don't think uh, that big a deal. But for those of you that read commentaries or, or such things, if you were to go, you'll find debate there. So I at least let you warn you if, before you get there that uh, those things are there. Whatever is happening, and whether we, we have ended the prologue and we've entered into, the, into where John's going, he clearly tells us right here at the beginning, as he has been doing, that we need to be expecting something significant to take place, that, that what he has to write about is a reality that is going to demand us to make a decision. There's just no way to get around it. When kings come and kingdoms come and those type of things happen, even though in our culture, and I want to talk about it in just a second, we are very prone towards choices and as many of them as we could possibly get. Um, the reality is, is that the choices start to become very limited when we really think about the reality of what a kingdom brings about. Um, for those of you that, that watch such things as Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know that, that the man Dennis, and I guess that's why I remember it so well because it's Dennis who said, Who made you king? We didn't elect you. And I think that there's something within our culture that we really have to begin to be challenged as we read the Gospel of Mark to think, because here's the reality that's taking place here. We think about decisions as something that we could make if we wanted to. And if we don't want to, we don't have to. That there's actually a decision that all these decisions really have to do with I have multiple options and I can pick and choose from these options. But I want you to understand that where Jesus is taking us and where Mark wants us to see Jesus taking us is, is that really our options have been narrowed down to one. There is an option. And in some sense, you, you might even gather the notion of what Paul writes in Philippians when he says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess is really taking place right here in this passage. 
that when Jesus says what he says, the reality is not, will you kneel? It's how will you kneel? That's really the only choice, if you will, that's available. When a king comes, you have one of two options. You're either forced to kneel or you kneel willingly. The question is not, will you kneel? And so as we begin to look at this and we begin to look at how Jesus is speaking, I don't want us to approach this passage and say, well, you know, what Jesus is saying here, it's this idea about, you know, he wants people to see who he is and he wants people to come to these, this place. And See, the whole point of the rest of the gospel is this idea. Jesus is confronting creation out of control. Jesus is confronting disease run rampant. Jesus is confronting demons who think they're in charge of the place. And what happens? Things are either subdued out of choice or subdued by force. That's what we see. We see people willingly bringing diseased people, willingly calling upon Jesus to act, or we see Jesus telling storms to be quiet and to calm down. And it happens. See, from the very beginning, Mark wants us to see on the lips of Jesus the reality that Jesus does not think of himself as somebody that you can say, he's a good guy, he's a nice moral teacher, he was a helpful person. Gee, wouldn't it be nice to be thoughtful like Jesus? Wouldn't it be nice to be a person who thought about women the way Jesus thought about women? And all the things that people often will do with Jesus so that they don't have to deal with the one real fact about Jesus, and that is, is that Jesus is the King. He's the King. And He doesn't leave you with any options. I love Lewis in Mere Christianity when he says, when he makes the idea, you can, you can dismiss Him as a fool. You can dismiss Him as a demon. Or you can bend the knee to Him as Lord. But what you can't do is say he's some good moral teacher. He didn't leave that option open to you. He didn't intend to. And what I want us to see loud and clear, I'm holding no punches. I'm not waiting to the end to give you this kind of punchline. I want you to get it as we start to go through this passage from the very beginning. Jesus is confronting a kingdom out of control. And he comes and declares, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here. And that requires decision. You can't get away from it. So let's begin to look at something about how we might see this and understand this. We're going to ask three questions. When is it coming? Where is it? And, and how, I believe the question I asked is, how do I get in? Um, those are those are the things that I think people would have been asking. The first thing people would have been asking, when Jesus comes and says the gospel, the good news of God, um, that wouldn't have been something completely un, unknown to people. I mean, they'd heard Isaiah talk about good news. They'd heard, they'd heard other things talking about this. This is not shocking information. But what they would want to know is, when is Messiah coming? That was a very normal. When will the kingdom come? 
And so when Jesus arrives on the scene and says, the kingdom has come, that's significant. But what we see beginning to happen is, is that what Jesus is saying is, everything that happened in the Old Testament all the way up to this point has now come to its critical junction. We now, if you will, are at the hinge of history. It's the pivotal point. Everything hinges right here. And so when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, what I want you to say is, is in your mind is saying, when people were saying, when is it? When is it coming? When's it going to be here? Jesus is saying, it has come. The time is fulfilled. Everything that had to fill up, if you're thinking about an hourglass and the sand is filling up, basically the idea is that last grain of sand has dropped, is what Jesus is saying. And the time is now. The time is fulfilled. When is it? Right now. That's what Jesus is saying. It's right now. He comes proclaiming. One of the key central things that we see in this passage that gives us, and it might seem just like interesting information in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. But remember, we've already talked about this. John is the last Old Testament prophet. And when he is arrested, in other words, when he is silenced, that's the end of an age, if you will, and a new age has begun. That's really what Jesus is saying. The time is fulfilled. A new reality has come. Everything that was being pointed to, every promise, every event, every action of God that has happened in the past was leading us to this point. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, He means that every type of the Old Testament that you can consider Every promise that God has made finds its fulfillment right here in this person. And apart from this person, you cannot realize its fulfillment. Now understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, all of history hinges on me. All history hinges on me. Leaders rising and leaders falling kingdoms rising and kingdoms falling. All that finds any meaning, whatever meaning it's going to have, is in me. Because the time is now fulfilled. Because I've showed up. I'm here. Now, do you understand in some sense how you have to look at Jesus and say, you're either nuts or you're God? Do you see that? I mean... Who says the whole of human history hangs on me? The door of human history hangs. I am the hinge of human history. I am the thing that makes this thing go. And nothing happens apart from me. That's what Jesus is saying. The time is fulfilled. Here is the good news of God. When is it? Now. Now. That's what Jesus is, is saying to these people he's speaking to and to us as well. Now, he goes on to say this after he says the time is fulfilled. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. And what we understand is, is that even in his own day, 
When people thought about kingdoms, they thought about place. Where is it? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where? It's drawn near. Where? Where is it? And what we want to start to think about then is that we may have to begin to have a different definition of kingdom. At least Jesus is going to give us one because we know that by the time he meets up with Pilate and Pilate asks him, are you really a king? And he says, I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. See, in some sense, Pilate was asking him the same question. Where is it? If you're a king, where is your kingdom? How can I understand where? Give me, give me a geographical location. But that's not what Jesus is announcing when he announces this. And it will strike a very frustrating chord with the people who hear it originally because what he was saying is, is that the kingdom is drawn near in me. The reality of the kingdom is come near because I have shown up. It's not this acreage. It's not this particular place on the map. It's me. The idea of kingdom we need to have is more the idea of a reign more than a realm. We tend to think about a realm as a place. We need to think about when Jesus says the kingdom is drawing near, we need to think about that more as a reign, authority, power, a sphere of authority, so that when he comes and says, be gone, see, they keep saying he has authority. What they, what they could be saying is the kingdom is here. He has authority that even the leaders don't seem to have. He is even able to say to demons, come out, and they obey him. He's even able to say to leopards, be cleansed, to storms, stop. Do you see what's going on there? The kingdom is there. Everywhere Jesus is, kingdom rule and reign has come. And so he begins to transform the way people are looking over the, over the idea rather than so much of a geographical spot. So the idea here is this. Christendom is not a place. Do you understand what I'm saying? Too often Christians have tried to create Christendom geographically. Jesus is saying that's not what the kingdom is. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in Gerizim. It's where he's worshipped that we see the kingdom coming. That means it's, it can be all over the place in its present form. I want us to think about the kingdom in this way as well. The kingdom's nearness is, was the idea of the person in life of Jesus. I mean, he was the embodiment of the kingdom. But the kingdom didn't stop with Jesus. When Jesus says it's drawn near, he's come for a purpose. What is that? To expand his kingdom. Well, how's he expanding it? In the hearts and minds of people. And we understand that when we read our Bibles, the reason why we should be looking for a realm and not just a reign is we know that ultimately there will be kingdom consummation, Correct. We, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, a reality that we can touch, taste, and feel. Now, all of that ties into this reality. The announcement that of, of the kingdom has drawn near is an announcement that God has invaded the sphere of darkness. It's God's activity. All through this, notice what's happening. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That has nothing to do with what other people are doing. It has everything to do with what God is doing. God's divine initiative 
is taking place. God is at work. God is accomplishing this. God is doing it. And that then leads me into the last point. How do I get in? What I want us to see here that Jesus is doing when he says repent and believe in the gospel is he is drawing a reality that says this. When Jesus shows up, sin is being confronted. Death is being confronted. The devil is being confronted. Disease is being confronted. When Jesus shows up, he's saying rebellion is coming to be stopped. This is why oftentimes when we start talking about the Christian life in relationship to the person and work of Jesus, oftentimes people get wandering off into all sorts of things because they tend to start thinking, okay, so what are we going to do? And the whole idea of the kingdom of God coming is what God has done, what God is doing. See, you have to see that because if you look at what Jesus then commands people to do, repent and believe, you immediately make that something you... Well, this is what you do. And you don't put the emphasis where it should be, which is on what God has done. Repentance and belief really is almost the reality of a person awaking and finding that the way he thought the world worked was not the way he thought, not the way the world really works, and saying, I surrender. I surrender to the way the world works. That's really what's happening. See, when a person really understands who they are for the first time, I am depraved and lost. I have no hope. I cannot do this on my own. What is the only response they can have? They have to look to the one who's able to do it. And there is no other one but Jesus. That's his point. See, so the idea of rebellion, the idea of, of being alienated is being addressed. You cannot continue to rebel. The king has come. He is putting down the rebellion. You cannot continue to run off into the darkness and be alienated because the king's light is expanding everywhere and darkness is being put away. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you, that Jesus is basically eliminating any other option but Him? And the reason why this is so important for us today is because, look, we live in a, we live in a world and in the West where everything under the sun is being paraded out there for us. If you want a little Buddha, grab a little Buddha. You want a little Jesus, get a little Jesus. You want a little yoga, get a little yoga. You want a little, I mean, you know, just get a little bit of this and get a little bit of that. you got a thousand choices and, you know, make your own. Right? I mean, you know, you're not satisfied with the pizza choices on the menu. Well, make your own pizza. You know, make your own combo. And that's kind of what's become with religion today. It's, you know, you're not satisfied. You know, none of the religions really do it for me. I'll just make my own. See, we tend to laugh sometimes at, at, at things when we read about different cults and how they formed and how they seem to be this pulling of this and this pulling of that. But do you realize that every single one of us is a cult maker? We make our own cult. It's the cult of me. We have our own belief system. Remember what we're doing. We're trying to look at the real Jesus. Why? Because all of us tend to create a Jesus of our own making. Now, a lot of him may be the Jesus of the Scriptures. 
But there are aspects of him that are very much me. And that's why we have to constantly be coming back and look at Jesus stripping away and saying, you cannot cage me, you cannot confine me, I won't let you. You can't. As soon as you do that, you're not dealing with Jesus. You're dealing with somebody else who cannot save you to the uttermost. See, if he's a tame lion, he can't do you much good. If he's a lion that's able to act because he is untamed and uncontrolled by human beings, then he's able to do all that he pleases and all that does them good. And see, we have to be very clear that that's what's on the lips of Jesus as He comes. When He says, repent and believe, He's not just saying it as this this king standing up on the hill saying, do it or else. That's the amazing thing. What He's really pointing to is saying, watch me do it and submit. That's really what He's saying. Let me unpack this a little bit more. Repenting, think about this. When he says to repent, what is repent? Well, repenting is not feeling really, really shameful. Repenting is not feeling really guilty. That's not repentance. And too often, times, a lot of us tend to love, or we have loved, sermons which tend to really, boy, that, that, that preacher laid the wood on us this Sunday. He just smacked us upside the head. And what did he do? He made you feel shameful. He made you feel guilty. He may even have made you feel convicted. But being convicted is not repentance. There's every single one of you that have experienced conviction and then went right ahead and did the thing you shouldn't have done. We can be convicted without repenting. Repenting means to say, that way is not the right way. That way is, and you turn towards and go that way. That's what repentance is. It's not just turning away from something, because realize this. I've heard people say about repentance, well, you know, it's turning away from sin. But lots of times what people do is they turn away from this sin to this sin. It's, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like being a person who says, well, I gave up drinking and start, and, and start, and became a, a caffeine addict. I gave up caffeine and, and start by smoking, or, or vice versa. I mean, I listen to people all the time. I'll say, well, I finally quit smoking because I, start, I basically started having a food addiction. So I ate all the time. Do you see what I'm saying? You're just turning from one addiction to another addiction to another addiction. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying nothing else will do but Jesus. Nothing else will do but Jesus. That's repentance. I turn away from any other option that I might think is an option and realize there is no other option but Christ. To believe then is to believe in the gospel. It's to believe in the person and work of Christ. It's to believe that Jesus has done all that is necessary. And I want to say that emphatically. Repentance is saying I'm turning away from everything else to Jesus. Belief is saying that I actually am believing that Jesus has done everything necessary for my salvation. And that might seem like, yes, Dennis, we understand that. Great. But I want you to listen to how that confronts every one of us. I want you to hear how that really strikes at us because this is what that means. It requires everything of me and it requires nothing of me. 
It requires everything of me, and it requires nothing of me. See, most people will say, well, grace it requires nothing of me. Well, it requires nothing of me to be saved. But you do realize if God really has done everything necessary for your salvation, what do you owe Him? You owe Him everything. And do you understand how offensive, if you're really thinking clearly this morning, that is to human beings? It offends us. You mean that what it requires of me is nothing, I can do nothing to get a leg up with God? No. And it requires everything. You mean every, every part of who I am, every aspect of my life, every thought I have, all my money, all my stuff, my vocation, everything. Yes. Do you realize how comprehensive that is? Do you realize how serious what Jesus is saying is? If you come, you come to one who says, you can do nothing to get it, but it will cost you everything you have. That's what Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler. Go sell everything you have and come follow me. It costs you everything. But it's not him selling everything that gets him in. That's not what gets him in. What gets him in is Christ. What difference does it make if he goes and sells everything and gives it to the poor unless that actually means something in the economy of Jesus? Unless there actually is value and worth that. And who determines in a kingdom where value and worth is found? The people? The king. The king. So, what happens is, is the rebel in us is confronted. The self-righteous part of us is confronted. And even the skeptic is confronted. In the great words of Rush, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. See, Jesus won't let you off. Well, I just don't think, I just don't really know that you've made a choice. Well, if I can't do something to keep this thing going, to keep this thing running, to keep this engine, well, well, then I just don't know that I can take that. Then you've made a choice. See, your self-righteousness is one today. If you say, no one will tell me how to run my life or spend my money or who I'll be nice to, you see, Jesus has confronted you. You cannot get away from it. If the time has come, if the kingdom has drawn near, you're left with really only one option. Repent and believe. Repent. See the reality. See that there is no other place where hope can be found but Christ. And believe it with all your heart. Now you see that that becomes a lifelong process. As we've already talked about. It's a lifelong process. Because I never fully believe like I should. And what does that mean? That means I always have room to repent. Lord, I didn't trust you today like I should. Repent. But do you realize that repentance and belief are actually 
gracious things and not so much of a demand. I mean, it is a demand, but you understand they're gracious things. Because Jesus could say, bend the knee and go to hell. Do you understand that? I want to conclude with this. You understand that Jesus could have said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom has drawn near, confess what you are and go to hell. And he had been completely justified. See, the reason why this is good news is because Jesus says, the time is now. God has acted on your behalf. The kingdom has drawn near, not to obliterate you, but to redeem you. Therefore, see the gracious gift of being able to say, Lord, I have failed, and I believe you are able to save me to the uttermost. If you can say that this morning, then you have gotten the point of decision. You have come to a place where you are able to say, all to Jesus, I surrender. All to Him, I freely give. May God make that so in everyone in this room's heart. Amen.